I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In today's episode, we continue our rewatch of The Leftovers with episode 5 of the final season. It's a matte, 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 matte world. My name is Justin Hamilton and I've bought a whistle to blow off some steam here on Big Squid. today as we hurtle towards our final few episodes of The Leftovers. Um, after this one, there's only three to go. I can't believe it. It is It's going to be a bittersweet moment. I'll tell you that much. But uh, I'll also tell you that it's fun to rewatch. And if this is your first time, you'll find a lot more when you go back over it. But... Yeah, I don't know. I've really enjoyed this. It's uh, it's a lot of work. These episodes get more and more dense as we get closer to this looming finale. But uh, it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. I've been getting a lot out of this and uh, I hope you're getting a lot out of it as well. Uh, before we get into it, uh, I'd like to thank all of you for your kind and encouraging words about the new ABC show, Question Everything, that is hosted by Will Anderson and Jan Fran. I've been working on that behind the scenes for the last couple of months. And look, you don't want to be uh, too down on things, but it is really hard to put together uh, anything uh, when you're in lockdown, uh, and especially a TV show. And uh, also trying to introduce new talent to the small screen and giving people an opportunity and trying to get things right and then you put it up and I would say 99% of you have been great and then there's some people who, you know, like they'll be angry that it's not what they wanted it to be and it's like, okay, well, you know, make your own show during lockdown. 
with all of the shit that goes on. And then uh, I'll get angry at you for it not being what I wanted it to be. <laughs> or there are just a couple of people saying, oh, it felt a bit bit rough. Oh, it's not it's not as good as Gruen. It's like, yeah, you're, you're comparing the first episode of something to a TV show that's been on for a long time. Guess what? Most things struggle out of the block or make mistakes. You know, uh, in Roger Federer's first uh, Grand Slam tournament, you know what he did? Didn't win it. He didn't win it. So, you know, everyone, relax. Well, it's not everyone. It's just a few of you. You people, fucking relax. <laughs> I thought it was a really good first episode, especially with everything that's been going on. I thought our guests did a great job. Uh, the writers, the production team, you know, uh, I think it's looking really good. It felt to me like uh, an episode of uh, a TV series that was coming back from a break rather than a TV show that was debuting for the first time. Um, look, if you missed the first episode and you want to have some firm views on what you thought of it, you can check it out at ABC. View, and it will be back next Wednesday at 8.30pm with three brand new guests to keep Will and Jan company. Also, don't forget to check out Alex Hammond's novel, The Paris Collaborator. I had Alex on the podcast earlier this week. Great guy. His new book just might be the thing you'd like to read, especially while you're in lockdown. If you're in lockdown, it's a real thriller. And I think uh, author Hammo has out done himself he's done a, a great job and there were plenty of times that i was meant to be doing things and i thought ah just to read a few more pages so that's always a really good sign all right let's get ready for our final matt jamison centric episode the first two were great and this might be the best one it's a matt 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 world the airport shut down. They're diverting us. How the hell do we get to Melbourne? Please, let us on board. We need to bring Kevin back from Australia. You spoke his name. Your people bought out the whole boat. My people? I'm not one of those lunatics. What are you doing? This is your fault. What kind of person do you think I am? Creation. Suffering. Sacrifice. The sudden departure? Why? There has to be a reason. The credits roll, and while they do, we can hear a man speaking softly in French as music plays underneath. We watch as a submarine glides into view, slipping through the shadows that block out our view of the world underwater, light barely able to filter down through the surface. The submarine looks like an old monster, slowly swimming through the dark. Inside, a sailor opens a safe and takes out a metal key that he places around his neck on a chain. He then produces a little square iPod, plugs it into the sound system, and blares music through the speakers of the submarine. The sailor calmly undresses until he is completely naked. He stares ahead. He is focused on what comes next. Another sailor comes running down the corridor and into the room to turn off the music, but before he can do so, the naked man attacks him, slamming his head into the side and steals his key. Now it is the naked man running through the submarine, being chased, the lights flashing red, flashing danger. The naked man arrives at a big heavy door. He types in a code that allows him into a room that he promptly locks. He walks to the console on one side of the room, opens it, and places one of the keys in place. 
He then walks to the opposite side of the room where he finds a matching console where he once again slips in the other key. Outside, the crew of the submarine are panicking, knocking at the door, trying to break inside their cries for common sense ignored. Inside the room, the naked man reaches out with one foot towards one key and then with his arm reaches out for the other key. He strains as he attempts to turn both keys at the same time, his toes desperately attempting to find a grip, some purchase to turn the key. Finally, he manages to turn both of them. Another console opens up and the naked man removes a switch with a red button on top of it. He closes his eyes. He mouths some words that only he can hear and presses the button. We're now with Matt Jamison as he visits some people at their home, a casserole in hand. On the news, there's a report that there has been a nuclear blast in the South Pacific. Matt ignores the TV and talks to the man of the house, his mother lying in bed, gravely ill. Matt looks over at her with compassion and lets the man know that they're all praying for her. Then Matt reveals why he is really there and informs the gentleman he needs a favour that only he can provide. Matt needs to fly to Australia. He knows there's a plane on the tarmac ready to go elsewhere, but Matt has to get to Melbourne. The man looks at Matt and tells him that flights are grounded, but Matt points out that it is only non-essential flights that are grounded. The man is reluctant. He doesn't want to leave his mother. So Matt pulls out a bag with $20,000 inside. He explains that something incredible is going to happen on the seventh anniversary of the sudden departure, but he needs to fly to Melbourne because there's a special man down there who needs to be with them. Matt needs to go to this man and this current situation. Well, this is God testing their faith. The man looks at Matt and says, so this is a rescue mission. Matt replies, yes, yes it is. On the tarmac, Matt calls Kevin and leaves a message. Matt is guessing that Kevin probably knows about the nuclear attack, but not to worry. He's coming down there to get him. He looks up as Michael and John Murphy arrive, but Matt isn't too excited to see Laurie as well. Matt doesn't want Laurie to join them, but she insists she has to. She says that three years ago, her ex-husband had a delusional breakdown and attempted to kill himself by drinking poison. Then Matt turned his experience into scripture, and then suddenly Kevin relapses, and what does he do? He runs to the other end of the world to escape. Laurie is angry with Matt because she thinks his intentions are dangerous, that Matt isn't grasping this. Laurie points out that Matt hasn't spoken to Kevin, and hasn't even attempted to contact his his sister Nora, who was also not picking up her phone. Matt replies condescendingly, did you bring a whistle? Because you sound like you have to blow off some steam. Fuck you, says Laurie. John tries to calm everyone down. He reminds Matt that Laurie is his wife. If he wants John to come along on this mission, then Laurie comes along too. John is calm, loving. He reminds everyone that they all want the same thing, to bring Kevin home. On the flight, Laurie tells Matt that when they find Kevin, he should not talk, and instead, she will do the talking. Matt doesn't understand why Laurie is acting like this. He wants to know if Kevin saw something new, that it feels like Laurie is keeping something from all of them. Laurie is hiding something from them, that Kevin contacted her about seeing Evie, something she doesn't want to share with any of them, specifically John. 
So she changes tack, but Matt gets defensive. This is why he didn't let her know about the book, because this was always going to be her reaction. Matt knows something is going to go down on the seventh anniversary in four days, and there is nothing that can sway Matt from his mission. He will not be told what to do, and he refuses to believe Kevin is psychotic. Laurie points out they were married for 15 years. He looks through every cupboard before he finds the wine glasses. He has a tattoo that is misspelled and that he shits four times a day. And finally, that she refuses to believe he is in fact the second coming. As she says, this, the plane hits turbulence, shuddering, clattering, and everyone suddenly quietens. Matt sits back smugly. As far as he's concerned, that was another sign. Later that night, the plane continues to fly and not unlike the submarine gliding through the shadows below the surface of the water, as above, so below. Matt reads the Bible when a drop of blood falls from his nose. He quickly cleans himself up before dropping some pills for his medication. Michael wakes and asks what the pills are and Matt claims they're for his allergies. He looks at Michael and says that he needs to know that he's on his side no matter what. The pilot interrupts to let them know that their flight is being diverted to Tasmania because all of Melbourne Airport is in lockdown. They arrive in Tasmania and Matt is told they will have to catch the ferry to get across. Matt attempts to buy four tickets but the ferry is booked for a private function. There won't be another ferry until this morning. Matt tries to make his case and is told if he wants to get on he'll have to take it up with the people who booked the ferry. As they walk to find who is in charge, they watch as a lion in a cage is driven past them and onto the boat. Matt makes his way through the line and approaches a woman with a clipboard dressed in a lion costume. Are you a member of our pride, she asks. A man in a red baseball cap pushes rudely past them as Matt tries to lie. He fails miserably, so he changes tact and begs the woman to let the four of them on board. (laughs) The woman points out that there is going to be a lot of sex on the boat. And if they want to go on, they have to be fine with that. Matt says he is. The woman sizes them up and then asks Matt to tell the filthiest joke he knows. Laurie steps up, but the woman wants Matt to tell her one. What's the difference between a pimple and a priest, says Matt. A pimple waits until you're 12 before it comes on your face. The woman is impressed. She says Laurie can go wherever she wants, but before midnight, no man can use his name unless he becomes him. Matt doesn't understand who him is. She pulls back her jacket to reveal a t-shirt with a line on it that says, Frasier. Matt, Laurie, John and Michael walk onto the ferry, very confused by what they just experienced. Later, Matt walks through the ferry, ignoring the naked people who wander about as he talks on the phone about the nuclear attack. But the phone call is cut off and Matt is back where he started with the fact that all flights are still grounded. He says to John, we can still grab Kevin, travel back to Tasmania, then fly to Miracle by the 14th. John looks at Matt sadly and says, we have to accept that it is going, it is not going to happen. We're not going to get him back in time. Matt insists that they have to go back because Miracle is where his wife woke up and where he was finally delivered a son. John points out that while he was in Miracle, he lost his wife and daughter. Matt gets angry and pushes back to John that he has given too much of his power to Laurie. John calmly points out that Matt should have given some of his power to Mary, but Matt disagrees. He sees his wife leaving him as another test. Before they can continue, Matt's nose begins to bleed, so he runs off to clean himself up. In the bathroom, he stares at himself in the mirror, 
paper up both bloodied nostrils. A security guard comes out of a cubicle and laughs. He's seen God smite many people on this boat. Matt is confused and asks if the security guard is suggesting that God punched him in the face. Yes, the security guard says. Yahweh, the voice of the Olympics, he's on the top deck. I'd avoid him if I were you. Matt leaves the bathroom and goes upstairs to the top deck. Upstairs, the man with the red baseball cap sits alone reading. He barely looks up when Matt asks if he is telling people he is God. The man, David Burton, hands Matt a card that reads, Yes, I am God. David walks off, ignores the two people fucking on the deck. On the back of the card, there is more information that Matt reads to his friends. Yes, I am the one true God. I go by many names, but David is fine. I will not take a photo. There was no big bang, just nothing then light. Yes, I created you. No, I didn't create unicorns. Eve wasn't made from Adam's rib. It was his tibia. I asked Abraham to kill Isaac just to see if he'd do it. Yes, evolution is real, but it doesn't work how you think it does. I won the bronze medal for the decathlon and the hammer throw. I had nothing to do with the crusades and any type of genocide. Matt is furious, but Michael can't understand why he's getting upset. Matt is upset because it's blasphemy. Michael looks at Matt and says he should tell Laurie that he's sick. Matt refutes this, and Michael points out that his father never used to talk before, but once he did start talking with Laurie, he's been better for it. Matt shakes his head. He doesn't believe in Laurie and her psycho babble. Michael points out that Laurie wants the same thing they all want, so maybe she too is a disciple in her own way. Matt walks back through the party. Naked people make out while music plays. Everywhere Matt looks, he sees sex, debauchery. But nobody looks at Matt. He eventually finds John and Laurie and asks if he can speak to her alone for a moment. John heads off to find Michael. Laurie talks about back in the 70s, there was a zoo where the lioness wouldn't have sex with any of the male lions. Then there was an old lion. It was in its 90s and it was rescued from a Mexican circus. Uh, And it was brought to this little zoo to live out his days. And the next day they realized he'd had sex with all of the lionesses and fathered 35 cubs. Matt nods. This is the infamous Frasier. Laurie says to be careful. It is before midnight and no man can say his name. Matt finishes off her thought. Unless he becomes him. Laurie says that the lion on the boat is supposedly one of his offspring and they're taking him around the world so he can spread his seed. They look at one another and Laurie concedes that she thinks they should play it Matt's way with Kevin. Maybe letting Kevin think he is the actual messiah will allow them to gain his trust. But Matt does believe it is all true, that all he did was just write down Kevin's experiences. Laurie says they're hallucinations. Matt refutes this. He believes that what happened to him was real. Laurie is exasperated. She says that when he saw Paddy, she was dead, and Evie too. She was also dead. And then Laurie stops. She begs Matt not to tell John and Michael that she's just given up the fact that Kevin saw Evie. Please don't tell them, she says. But... Matt agrees. He says he needs time to be alone. And when Laurie leaves and nobody is around, he runs to the side of the ferry and vomits. Matt gathers himself and turns around just in time to see on the top deck as David wrestles with a man and then throws him over the side of the boat. Matt yells, man overboard, but nobody listens. He yells at David, I saw you. I saw what you did. 
Matt runs inside and tells everyone there is a man in the water, but they don't pay him any attention. They're too ensconced in their orgy. Matt runs back outside, grabs a life buoy and jumps into the water with it. Suddenly, people run out to see what he's done. And finally, the security man blows his whistle. Matt is back on the boat, shivering wet. They've saved Matt, but they didn't find anyone else, let alone the man that Matt claims he saw David throw off the boat. Matt tells them to check the manifest, but there isn't one. The captain knows David Burton. He's a celebrity. He was a broadcaster at the 2000 Sydney Olympics and competed in them in the 80s. Matt is confused. How did he go from being a sports broadcaster to being Yahweh? The captain explains he became God after he died. What happened was three years ago, David went rock climbing with a mate just outside of Perth when he fell 100 metres and broke his neck. His mate dragged his lifeless body into a cave so the dingoes wouldn't eat it, and then he went to get help to retrieve the body. When he returned, they found Burton sitting out the front of the cave without a scratch on him. Not only did he feel fine, but he was also now God. John finds it ridiculous that anyone can believe this, but the captain explains that some people do, while others just think it is a bit of a laugh. What David didn't expect was to be pestered by so many people, so that's why he hands out the cards instead. In the meantime, he spends most of his uh, life in Tasmania, where he can live privately, apart from when now and again he catches the ferry to be amongst the people. Matt doesn't understand why nobody believes him about the man overboard. The captain says unless David comes up and confesses, this is the end of the story. Matt looks at John and asks if he believes him. John says he does, but Matt snaps and throws it back in his face that he probably believes him the same way he believed him when he said that he didn't molest his comatose wife. Matt throws his blanket aside and leaves John alone. He walks through the orgy that is getting more intense. Drums play. More people are having sex dressed in costumes, line masks. Matt approaches the original woman who let him on and demands to see the list of everyone on the ferry. He doesn't understand that she isn't looking for one of her people who was thrown overboard. She's clearly not interested in looking. She's having a good time. She doesn't care if someone has been killed. Matt snaps. He yells at her, All you care about is sex and Frasier. She suddenly blows a whistle and points at Matt, telling all of the people that Matt spoke his name before midnight. Everyone turns, pointing at Matt, yelling that he said his name. They slip a noose around his neck and he's led to a chair where he's surrounded, chanting over and over, Frasier, Frasier, Frasier. The drums continue. He's held in place and a lion facade is presented and pushed towards him. Much to his horror, they want Matt to fuck the fake lion. A woman kneels down between Matt's legs and begins to rub him, to arouse him. She begins to undo his pants, even though Matt doesn't want this to happen. He begs them to stop. Another woman approaches with a container that they want to place over his cock to catch his seed. And finally, Matt explodes. He fights back, pushing everyone away and grabs the microphone, yelling that everyone should be ashamed of themselves. But nobody cares about his fury and they collectively boo him, giving the thumbs down. Amongst all of the commotion, Matt watches as David Burton heads upstairs. He runs out of the room and after David confronting him, telling him he saw what he did. David turns around and punches Matt so hard in the stomach that he falls to the ground. While he lays in agony, a young woman runs up to Matt and tells him that he is right, that they do have a plan, that when they dock, it might be best to stay on the boat. 
she leaves Matt in pain, clueless to what she could be talking about. Finally, Matt gets to his feet and returns to Laurie and John. He's worried that nobody cares that he saw a man murdered and that they need David Burton to confess. He believes that David is doing something that is blasphemous. John won't help, but Matt needs him to reconnect with his wrath, the same anger he used when he burned people's homes down for their false claims. Laurie points out that John can't do that anymore because since then he has found peace. Matt points out to Laurie that John still thinks his daughter is alive, and you know what that isn't? Peace. John suddenly picks up something between Matt and Laurie, something that they've been holding back from him. Matt turns to John and confesses that Kevin thinks he saw Evie in Melbourne. John asks Laurie if this is true, and she says yes. He did think he saw Evie, but it wasn't her. It was a manifestation, and she didn't tell John because she didn't want to hurt him. He nods. John gets it. He wouldn't have told him either. Matt watches this and finally understands too. Laurie was protecting John. That's what friends are supposed to do for each other. Matt decides he needs to sleep. This is a distraction. They need to focus on Kevin now. Matt doesn't go to sleep though. He instead goes to see the doctor and he talks to someone. But we can't hear what they're saying. We then see Matt pushing a wheelchair and as he rolls it along the deck, he picks up an axe that is on a sidewall on the ferry. Matt then approaches David and knocks him to the ground with the axe's handle. Matt throws the book David was reading overboard. Seems harsh. Two people who have just been having sex. Stop just long enough to watch. He straps David to the wheelchair and wheels him down into the cargo bay where the lion growls, sitting in its cage. Matt waits for David to wake up. Where's my book, David says. Matt explains that he threw it overboard, but he doesn't want to talk about the book. He wants David to transform the ropes to free himself. David has no intention of doing that because Matt will untie him once he gets what he wants, which is David's attention. The lion growls, but David whispers in its direction to calm. Matt wants David to admit he threw a man overboard, that he needs to confess this to the captain and the authorities. David will gladly admit to Matt that he did just that, but he won't tell the authorities because he's the authority. Matt is angry and points out that if he created everything, how come he only won bronze in the decathlon? Good argument. David calmly points out that he won bronze before he actually became God. Matt argues that if he died in the rock climbing incident, then like Jesus, he was reborn from the cave. So why doesn't he mention his son Jesus on the card? David calmly explains that Jesus wasn't his son. Now Matt is even more furious. He's denying paternity. But David just points out that it is Mary's word against his. In fact, Jesus just rotted in the cave and what actually happened was that he had a twin brother who everyone saw walking about a few days later. This is where the confusion comes from. Matt wants to know what David does take responsibility for and he says the sudden departure was definitely his doing. Matt asks why did he do it and David replies, because I could. Matt needs more. There has to be a reason. He's worked hard to guide people to erase their suffering. He sacrificed his happiness and this led to his family abandoning him. David wants to know why he would do this. For you, Matt yells. Everything you've done is because you thought I was watching and judging, but I'm not, replies David. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for yourself. Matt looks at David and asks, is that why you're killing me? David nods. 
Matt explains when he was young and had cancer, he prayed to God to save him and he did. Why would the cancer be back now? David says he can save him again, but Matt isn't sure. David asks Matt to untie him. Matt drops to his knees and unties him and watches as he puts out his hands near Matt's face. He suddenly snaps his fingers. Ta-da, says David, you're saved. He stands up and walks away, leaving Matt alone. The ferry begins to dock and on the deck Matt stands alone until the captain approaches him. It turns out a fishing boat found a body which matches Matt's description. The police will be taking David Burton into custody once they dock. They want Matt to make a statement if he doesn't have any pressing engagements in Melbourne. Matt says that he doesn't have any. He looks down to a lower level of the ferry and sees the woman who had spoken to him earlier after he'd been punched about a secret plan and this time she's speaking with two men, one who is holding bolt cutters. Matt walks away and finds Laurie, John and Michael. They want to know if he managed to get some rest, but they can tell something isn't right. Matt tells them he is glad to have their company, that he isn't okay, that he is in fact dying. His friends look at him, stunned, uncertain what to say. On the dock, police cars arrive to pick up David, who suddenly realises he's in trouble. He's about to be arrested. He turns to run back onto the ferry, but as he does this, the woman and her two male friends snap the bolts and free the lion. It leaps out of the cage. People scream, and the lion finds David Burton and attacks him. More screaming. People are in shock. Matt watches on as bullets are fired. He turns around to face his friends, to face us. That's the guy I was telling you about. Ah, And so we come to the end of the Matt Jamison trilogy. Every episode we've watched that centres on Matt revolves around his faith being challenged by the absurd and how he responds in these awful circumstances. Humans have always been very capable of finding form in chaos and in these potential end times it has been a challenge for Matt to find his way through it all without compromising who he is. We've seen his faith slip at times before. In the first season it was while lying in the rollout bed that sits alongside his wife's looking for guidance from a painting of Job. In the second season we see him beg his comatose wife to wake again like she did on that first night in Miracle or at least give him a sign everything is still moving in the correct direction. Now his faith is challenged in the only way it could, by coming face to face with God, or a God, or just someone who knows how to play a very good facsimile of one. Matt is one of the hardest characters to love, but I do love him. Think about the world this man lives in. When he was 10 years old, he was envious of his sister Nora and all the attention she was receiving, so he prayed to God to have some of it come back his way. And then he nearly died from leukemia. So what does Matt do? He doubles down on his belief, sees it as a test, preaches about God to anyone who will listen. Then, when he's a teenager, he sits on the curb with his sister and watches the family home burn down with his parents inside. How does he deal with this? He tells his sister, his friends, and more importantly himself, that this is all part of God's plan, and because of that, his parents didn't really suffer in that awful way to die. Now he doubles down again and grows up to be a preacher, spreading the good word of the Lord. And then one day, 2% of the world disappears, and if you believe that is the rapture, then why wasn't Matt taken? Not only was he left behind, but someone was taken while driving, and that car hit his, putting his beloved wife in a catatonic state. 
Personally, I think Matt goes slightly mad at this point. We've never seen a version of him that is calm, uh, except for the party for Kevin Garvey Sr. in the first season, the day before the sudden departure. That's a man who has kept his faith, been a man of the town, and holds himself in good grace. He's an important man, and he's happy. But from that day forward, he's not coping. His worldview has been shaken. He keeps changing tact and focused. At first, he needs to point out that not all the departed people were good people. Then he decides he has to save members of the guilty remnant, even if they don't want his help. Then there is a moment of sanity, of relief, of getting back on track. He decides he needs a break and visits the small town in Texas where nobody departed. But before he can soak it all in, before he can replenish himself, his wife wakes for a short amount of time. It is a taste of his old life his previous life, and now he has a new fixation. Not only that, but this moment brings unwanted trouble with it. The pregnancy of his catatonic wife draws the type of attention he doesn't want or deserve. So how does he cope? He takes penance for his sins. He banishes himself to the little camp just outside of Miracle and continues to preach, continues to double down yet again. Then there is a reward. His wife is returned to him and they have a son. But the madness that lives in Matt, that poisons him, that plays on his faith and belief, all of that finds another outlet, another focus. Kevin coming back from the dead twice. And if Kevin is the new Messiah and Matt is his friend, that means he is an apostle. He's important, not just to Kevin, who, just like the guilty remnant, doesn't want this type of help. He's not just important to Kevin, but to Miracle, the rest of the world, and to God. God! He's finally being rewarded, and he believes this with such ferocity. He fails to save his marriage. He fails to find peace in his life, and he fails to find solace in his world. So when that Messiah is stuck on the other side of the world, he breaks all sorts of rules and follows him there. And what is Matt's reward this time? He's stuck on a ferry with a guy that claims to be God, and this version of God is Old Testament levels of acting like an arsehole. (laughs) Before we go into this, though, we have to remember that Matt has always been smart. His faith might shackle him at times, might have him spinning in directions that he doesn't need to face, but he's always been astute. He works out early on that Laurie is hiding something about Kevin from them, but never pushes the question because he's so preoccupied with his cancer or his mission. The irony of Matt Jamison is that while he attempts to teach us about the Lord, he teaches those around him and those of us who are watching him, like gods from up high, looking down into his world. That blind belief is dangerous. All three of his episodes will revolve around this approach to belief, but they are also funny and cruel, and sometimes cruel and funny in tandem. He's also a narcissist of the highest order, constantly and desperately attempting to find meaning in his life that will somehow explain his place in the world. This episode appeals to me on so many levels, but mainly because I buy into the joke. I think the universe is what it is. There is no order. There is no real purpose beyond what you bring to the table every day. That any purpose in life is confined to your surroundings, and it is your job to do your best for you and everyone around you. Matt has spent his life applying a belief system to an indifferent universe, and in the process, he has failed to see how important he is to his loved ones, to the people who surround him in his community, to a wife and son who need to live as well, to a sister and friends. 
Matt has always been good at reading people, but maybe he's met his match in David Burton, a man who reads Matt like a good book. He's willing to keep reading until it gets good, and then when he's confronted by Matt, strapped to a wheelchair and threatened, he's able to talk his way through it because he can see what Matt needs, all of his weaknesses, all of his true desires. Is David Burton God? We've seen him in the other place, and if 2% of this world is supernatural, then that does suggest some level of divinity. Unlike, uh, well, he's like Kevin, isn't he? You know, someone who has died and come back. So maybe he can access this place, or maybe he was there for a little bit longer when Kevin was there. But on the other side of things, the story about Burton was worldwide, so if Kevin going over there is just a psychological trick, then that could be his subconscious bringing this all together. Yet in a world that doesn't run like clockwork, that is chaotic, that has Frenchmen trying to nuke the devil, doesn't it make sense that by coincidence Matt could end up on this ferry? It doesn't matter if David is divine or insane. He gives Matt the cold truth of the universe and allows him to accept his returning cancer to be nothing but a devastating situation that ultimately means nothing. All that matters now is how he spends the rest of his time alive. The time on a boat is a perfect metaphor for how Matt has lived his life. All these amazing things are happening around him and he's so focused on God that he can't sit back with his friends and say, fuck, what is going on here? If God is all of us, then David is God. But so is Matt and so are you and so am I. In the end, in that final scene, when Matt watches David Burton mauled to death by the lion, he looks at us and says, that's the guy I was telling you about. In that moment, he is not only talking about David and God, he is also talking about himself. And if you look back hard enough at Matt as he looks directly at you, you might see your reflection in the TV and possibly realise he's also talking about you. Okay, it is time for the Squid Bits Man, what a good episode, right? Oh, God. It's just... I think this season might be my favourite season of the three. It's hard to tell. They all kind of feel like it's just one big hole in a way. But if you're breaking it down, I feel like this season's perfect. I'm loving it. It's so good to go back over it. Um, Let's get into the squid bits on the cargo plane. Matt reads Daniel 6.20 to 23, specifically the passage that involves God saving Daniel when he is cast into the lion's den by shutting the lion's mouths. Uh, David Burton's FAQ card references Noah, which continues the season's motif of the flood narrative. The whole dialogue between Matt and David echoes the conversation between Job and God in the book of Job. David's card also references the Tower of Babel. The title of the episode is a play on the 1963 comedy movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Did I do too many mads then? God, it's hard to keep up. Uh, Frasier the Sensuous Lion was a real-life cultural phenomenon. He was transported from Mexico to the Irvine, California Lion Country Safari in 1970. The myth that Laurie tells in this episode is pretty much the real myth. Frasier died in 1972. There was a movie made about him in 1973 that uh, did pretty poorly at the box office. But the film featured a song by Sarah Vaughan, which also appears in this episode. David Burton reads Louis L'Amour's 
Lonely on the Mountain. He also has a card that says The Bicycle Thief, a 1948 Italian drama about a poor father searching post-World War II for his stolen bicycle, uh, without which he will lose the job, which was to be the salvation of his young family. Uh, The card says that is his favourite film. There is some irony at play in this episode. Matt has no idea that he wrote about David in the Book of Kevin because in the book he refers to David as the hangman. Michael is also unaware that he posted a letter to David from the Pillar Man back in Jarden. Do you remember that? And Laurie also fails to make the connection between David and the news she saw on him he was that was in season two there was a whole news piece uh, Matt doesn't believe David came back to life but does believe Kevin did so that shows you something uh, what David tells Matt he's saved it, it it isn't about surviving cancer but it's about realizing his mission is incorrect and so it's kind of like like I think David Burton's full of shit but he does provide something good and Matt once again applies a level of, uh, you know, logic or guidance to this world of chaos. But he's he's better for it this time, I think. Uh, here is a translation that I found on uh, online uh, of the French sailor's words over the main titles. I'm the only hope the last defence of a species about to be extinct. Demonists warned us, the wise scientists of the truth. They said these creatures would come seven years after the first ones were taken, seven years after the departure. And God, we were blind, blind to what we didn't want to see. Now we're about to stagger to the precipice of destruction. As soon as this monster was born, we ended Because this monster is about to end mankind, with its seven heads and its seven firing mouths, we only have one last hope, the egg. In the demonist cards I found it, hidden in a nest, a volcano in the sea. Thank God for technology. In our progress, we made the weapon to end all weapons, the nuclear bomb. Now its terrible power can be our salvation. If its explosion can break the fragile shell and melt the demon inside, God... May this missile fly right and let him find the nest of the volcano and may the egg be not hatched so this beast about to be born could be destroyed before it rises to destroy the world. Tough times for the sailor. (laughs) That's intense, isn't it? Uh, I didn't know it the first uh, couple of times I watched it and then uh, found that translation. Uh, The Leftovers Wiki is a really good one, but lots of articles and there's been so much stuff. I should actually keep... uh, a tab on all of that. Oh, God. Anyway, it's it's been a lot. Um, oh, the French sailor's name, according to his uniform, is Lion. Leon? There we go. There was a line cut from the final episode of season two when Kevin asked David who he really is at the karaoke bar, and he responds, I'm God. Burton's FAQ card was inspired by actor Thomas F. Wilson, who played Biff Tannen in the Back to the Future movies. He was so tired of being asked the same questions, he began handing out the cards. Oh, and uh, just keep in the back of your head the reference to Jesus' identical twin brother. I'm not telling you why. You'll find out very soon. <sighs> Only three more episodes to go. As I said, I'm bummed, but I can't wait for you to experience the end. I love this series so much, but uh, God, this series, 
And this season, pitch perfect. You can see why I was so bullish that Lindelof and his team were going to knock Watchmen out of the park. It was because of this. Anyway, um, if you're enjoying the podcast and all the work uh, that goes into it, including the the time and effort that my friends uh, put into it by appearing, uh, please leave us a top review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. And don't forget to come over to our Facebook page and uh, hang out with us as well. Always up for some some new friends to be talking to. We'd love to hear uh, about what you're loving. You know, that's it. Just tell us what you're loving. And tell us why you're loving it. And, uh, yeah, it's always nice to hear. Uh, that's on the, pra- the private Facebook page. So, um, uh, you know, uh, just ask to join and join and lots of nice people there. i got to get back in there. I haven't been there for a while. i got totally... God, God, the last few weeks have just been so challenging. You know, the, the Pfizer, second Pfizer shot kind of threw me for a while and... Just been some shitty things work-wise. Uh, uh, anyway, why finish this podcast on a bummer? This has been a good day. I've had fun with this. Let's finish with another quote that is themed for this final season. Uh, all of the quotes for this final season are about false prophets and messiahs, etc. So this time it is H.L. Mencken, and this quote felt appropriate for where Matt Jamison is left at the end. Mencken wrote, Any defeat, however trivial, may be fatal to a saviour of the plain people. They never admire a messiah with a bloody nose. Until then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.